Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. So many folks, myself included, feel like they're not ready, they're not quite qualified, and it's just about taking the first step. doing climate organizing work. I'm here today because the fossil fuel industry is waging a war on truth. And we became best friends. <laughs> I grew up on my family's farm in Nopoboro, and I've always just loved where I'm from so much. It's just something I've always known. And as I got older, I really began to see all of the forces that were threatening the place that I loved so much. Chloe's a freight train. She has an ability to envision the future and to commit to it. Things that Chloe believes in are worth believing in. I forget who the quote's from, but something to the effect of with progressive politics, you fight and you lose and you fight and you lose and you fight and you lose and then you fight and you win. Sometimes you just gotta overcome what makes you scared to do what's right. We talked to the people in our community. We drove door to door, went to people's houses, had real conversations, and in the end, we won in the most rural county, in the most rural state in America. There's a real tendency in politics when you win to like sit back and feel like you've done your part and it's all taken care of from here, we're gonna be good. That's not the case, you've got to get back on the horse. 100 miles an hour in the just filed to run for state senate and now the whole world miles The same thing is true of trail running. Celebrate the victories or nurse yourself through as hard defeats. It's just a question of margins right now. It's 52 of 48. But the most important thing is that you get back on your feet and you take that first step after the race is over. She won! She won! She won! She won! Thank you so much. All right. That was amazing. That was very cool. Um, I like that end tagline, run your own race. Also, based off of that, you guys just seem like genuinely awesome people. <laughs> this is going to be a fun evening. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining. My name is Vikram Iyer. Um, I have a couple of different hats, but I'm, I'm approaching it from a very specific one tonight. Um, I'm currently um, a deputy director in the National ACLU's political department and the former uh, Obama uh, White House senior policy advisor, um, but I'm coming out to you today in a personal capacity as a board member of the Commonwealth Club's Inforum Board, which is specifically um, a unit of the Commonwealth Club that tries to convene conversations that are um, cutting into a future generation of civic engagement, of public engagement, and public policy, of which um, there couldn't be a better nexus um, than the one that we have today. But um, I don't know. I know that you both flew in this afternoon. This, is that right? Have you guys ever participated at the Commonwealth Club before? We haven't. You First have not? Time. Okay. Well, here's a little fun fact that maybe some people in the room know. I just discovered this. Commonwealth Club programs are often streamed on NPR, mm -hmm. and it is the longest-running um, program to be carried across the United States public radio since 
1924, oh. which is wow. a little bit of history. But we know a club like this, a speaking club, the ability to come back and do stuff in person um, is a real testament to its survival during a pandemic. Um, and the fact that we can do this the day after Election Day in many states, like your home state of North Carolina, um, and the fact that we can do this um, uh, in person again really is a testament to the staff here. So I just want to be able to give a quick round of applause to everyone at the Commonwealth Club that puts on program that, that survived the pandemic and that brought you guys here today. So we, we saw a bit about your, your backstory um, and your biography, but just to, to name it, um, Senator Chloe Maxman, you're from rural Maine. Um, in 2018, you served on the Maine House of Representatives, as we saw. In 2020, um, you unseated the former Senate uh, minority leader, um, and you're an alum of Harvard and an unwavering climate change advocate. Canyon, you're a political organizer and strategist. You were a field director in the Bernie campaign in 2016, a vice chair in the Democratic Party in, in a uh, district in North Carolina, um, and obviously run both of those successful campaigns. You're making every young person today look very bad with this feat of accomplishments <laughs> all before your 20s. Um, but, but in your new book, you actually talk about why it appears that the Democratic Party has focused way too long um, on the interests of elite leaders, big donors, as we just heard from the top, as opposed to the bottom up. And I want to dig into the book by starting with some numbers. And I think some numbers that we can all, whether we follow politics closely or not, be familiar with. In 1996, President Bill Clinton was running for a second term, and he won 1,117 rural counties. By our definition, by the Department of Agriculture in the United States, that number, 1,117, is about 50% of all rural counties in the United States. In 2008, Barack Obama, my former boss, won 455 rural counties, which is about 25% of rural counties. So we see a decline, 50 to 25. In 2020, Joe Biden... Uh, won 194 counties, which by that same definition is only about 10% of rural counties in the United States. So I, I want to, Senator Wood, can start with you, but I want to just ask not only how did we get there, but if clearly in, in the early 90s there was some resonance between a Democratic president, anyone running for, for, for office, and rural communities, but in the 2020s, there seems to be a paltry amount of that. Has the party shifted in terms of what it values? Or have rural voters shifted in terms of what they value? Or is there something else that's explaining this, this really, really drastic decline in support? Mm. That's an amazing question. Thank you so much. And thank you for moderating today. And it's so wonderful to be here with all of you. Um, and also, please call me Chloe. Okay. <laughs> I think the story behind what has happened to the Democratic Party in rural America is really complicated and you know it's definitely laid out in the book much more eloquently than what I'll be able to say right now. But I think what we, we started to notice this pattern when we were campaigning. And every single day we would be talking to, Demo to Republicans and independents who had never been contacted by a Democratic canvasser or candidate in their entire voting history. Mm. 
We also saw this other trend where sometimes um, folks had been contacted before, but not since 2008 when Obama was campaigning. And so what that really started to raise in our minds is, wow, there's been you know, a pretty systemic disenfranchisement and withdrawal from rural places, especially when we campaign, which is really the only time when we have a good excuse to drive down a long dirt road, sit on someone's porch, and have a conversation. And so because we're not ha we don't have that infrastructure anymore, we've kind of lost contact a little bit. I think there are, you know, there are incredible candidates doing just the same thing that we did all across the country who, who are doing this work. But I think there's no doubt that we need more investment in rural America because in the absence of a, a democratic conversation, we have Fox News and evangelical religion really filling this void with really, really dangerous policies that we have seen manifested in the election of Donald Trump, for example. And Kenyon, I want to I want to go to you, but maybe since we've got um, a big crowd online and a, a more intimate crowd in in the room, maybe we'll take some liberty to to just try a quick thought experiment. Um, if everyone can, I know this might sound silly, but bear with me. If everyone can close their eyes for just for five seconds and imagine what you think a rural voter looks like, what what look comes to mind, and when you think of an urban and suburban voter what physical features or what that look comes to mind. Just spend five seconds thinking about that. Okay, now Canyon, we know that you grew up in true rural North Carolina. We saw that in the film. You were homeschooled. You grew up in the Appalachian Mountains. Um, what do you think is the perception? We're here in San Francisco, right? This is a very specific archetype when we close our eyes and we think of a San Franciscan, when we think of the technocratic Tesla driver, as you say in the film. Um, and then there's no a perception. Offense intended. <laughs> Maybe a little. Um, uh, no, none taken. But but it's it's an interesting archetype because you know when my family first came to this country, my dad landed in Kentucky. Uh, my mom came to the Central Valley of, of California, Visalia, which is, you know, borders a lot of farming communities. And yet my brother and I have a path that we live in major metropolitan cities. So the narrative will define us by our end state, right, that I live in San Francisco, that my brother might live in Baltimore. Um, but our values are somewhat more complex and nuanced by that. And yet when we look at someone, we make these assumptions around them. As someone that grew up in a rural community, that is one races in a rural community, what is the, the problem with how we're perceiving each other and what does that start to do to some of the issues that Chloe just laid out? Yeah, I, I, love, the, I love the thought experiment. I think what that drives home for me is just like how deeply, deeply seated in our stereotypes on both sides we, we can be, whether it's, you know, whether it's on the right taking in all kinds of Fox News and, and creating these narratives of the other at the border or whether it's us with the narratives of, of Trump voters all being, you know, bigots and xenophobic racists. Um, we have a tendency, I think, to get in our own reinforcing echo chambers and just paint the other side in the most uncharitable light that's possible. And, you know, yeah, there are, there's plenty of racism in all across the country. Our, our country is built on it, but there is also so like, we just paint, we just paint with a broad brush um, when 
really at the core. Like most people have very similar values and we can connect on a lot of shared issues if we just break through the, you know, the Twitter feed, the Facebook feed, the Fox News feed and go and have an honest conversation face to face. And so that's what Chloe did so powerfully. That's what hundreds of volunteers went out and did. And I think that that's, to me, that's the most powerful way forward is to get those face-to-face -face conversations, especially in such a digital age and coming out of a pandemic. People are really hungry for that. Yeah, that face-to-face -face, um, engagement and the empathy that's derived from that is a huge core to your campaign strategy. I want to get to that in a moment. But before we do, let's dig in a little bit more about like the cultural attitudes and the values of rural versus otherwise, because we make these divides, these presumptive divides, as you both talk about in the book, there's moderate versus progressives in the Democratic Party. There's urban versus suburban in the Democratic Party. There's rural versus the rest of America within the party. Um, what are the, uh, is there a significant cultural difference or a values-based difference between some of these factions? Or are we spinning that up? And the reason I ask is right now, if you were to look at national polls, um, I, I think you would find that most people want a good paying job. They don't want to be um, screwed over by like a, a tough economy. They want good infrastructure. They want good schools. And I would say if you push policy aside and focus just on values, as you talk about in, in the book, Chloe, it, it's, there should be some through lines. And yet it gets messed up in this perception of one another. So is there something culturally distinct in rural America that perhaps Democrats have been ignoring? To me. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Canyon and I often want to give each other space <laughs> yeah. to talk. So there's sometimes awkward silences <laughs> when, <laughs> we're, when we respond to a question. Um, I mean, I, I think you just said it so perfectly. You know, I, I often reflect that I, we have never heard a hardcore Republican say, I would love expensive health care. That's just not the conversation that's, that's right. happening. Yeah. So we do connect on so many values. Um, and that, you know, there are definitely sometimes when, when we don't and we can choose not to have those conversations. But for the most part, there's so much common ground to uncover. But we're surrounded by narratives these days that are really forcing us to focus on what makes us different. I'm a Democrat. You're a Republican. I live in a small town. You live in a city. You know, I believe in Medicare for all. I don't, you know, and so we get stuck there instead of taking the time to just put that aside a little bit and try and focus on on what we do have in common. And it's, you know, it's, it's not that difficult. You think so much of the time you have at least one thing in common, which is that most rural folks really love where they're from. Mm. We live there for a reason. There's a purpose to our existence. And uh, we, we can all relate to that. Yeah, Kenyon? Yeah, I, I think you said it really well. I mean, I think every, every, you know, there are as many different rural voters and as there are rural people. Like yeah. every everyone comes at it from from a different background and a different point of view. I think one thing is that folks really pride themselves on being good judges of character, and um, you know, I think. One thing one thing that was surprising to hear was like the amount of folks who uh, found Chloe appealing, who also found Trump appealing, who also found Bernie appealing. That it was like a a folks feel left behind by the political system and by the candidates that we've been putting out, and they want 
people being themselves and being authentic, not this like kind of cans establishment consultant consultant driven messaging and candidates that just kind of look the same cycle after cycle so i think that's one thing that we found that that really resonated with folks um it's that yeah yeah speaking from the heart yeah absolutely i mean two things you named there authenticity and the fact that even my question was a little faulty right to say what is the culture of rural america assumes that there's some monolithic catch-all culture when in fact there are individual people that have a, a tie to their land as, as you said chloe but also come at it from slightly different directions and can resonate with bernie sanders or donald trump or, or whomever else or chloe maxman i i think that the the issue about painting folks with the broad brush seems to be something that both democrats do towards the op- their opposition and republicans do towards their opposition um it, you you all may be familiar with this but in 2008 when um, then-Senator Barack Obama was campaigning, he had a, a famously reported on uh, gaffe on the campaign trail where he said he was referring to working-class voters in a Midwest city, and he basically said that um, in light of job loss, that, that, quote, they get bitter, they cling to guns or religion or antipathy um, to, to people who aren't like them. And that word they, even if we revere Barack Obama, whether we disagree with Barack Obama, there is a moment in which you have one of the most iconic presidential campaigns, revered for its digital strategy, for its community organizing strategy, and yet making broad assumptions about an entire community of people. And, and it's not just one president's fault or one candidate's fault. Um, it is sort of embedded in the way we think about human existence and human interaction. It feels sometimes like it's out of convenience. Well, they must be like this. It feels sometimes it's out of a lack of education and a lack of engagement. Um, you all had the opportunity to knock on doors in Maine, but Senator, sorry, I got to be regal about it for one second. Um, <laughs> but Senator, when we think about this problem writ large, you're, you often reflect, you both reflect in the book how this is informed by policies over time outside of just Maine. So how do we encourage a type of commonality of decency, of empathy, of conversation when the sometimes the those that are running for office are reflecting the everyday people that aren't running and maybe don't have the time to actually have those conversations? How do we try and get at that from an empathetic perspective? Oh, another really good question. I mean, you know, we, we write all of this. I've, I've knocked on about 20,000 doors the past two cycles, wow. and our, our campaign has had well over 100,000, you know, attempted voter contacts in our districts. And, you know, so that's, that's the experience that informs our responses to these questions. And it's, and it is an experience that's specific to Maine, but I think the narratives and the themes, you know, that we've seen in other campaigns that we've worked on or Kenyon's work in, in the Carolinas, you know, it all resonates, it, it all comes together. Um, you know, and so I think from that perspective, what is so important is just being able to have the conversations and supporting candidates in whatever way we can to ha- to be able to have those conversations. I think it's really requires a different way of thinking about how we campaign, of seeing our campaigns not just as, you know, a nine-month sprint to get one person elected, but as year-round investment in a community where folks can have sustainable jobs and really be invested in what's impacting a community, what issues do we need to be working on, how do we support candidates coming out of that community that might not, not, might not otherwise have access to running for office. And, you know, when we're talking about 
campaigning in rural America, it just, it just looks different because the houses are more spread apart. So, you know, I could knock 100, maybe 120 doors a day, and that would take my entire day. Uh, a lot of my friends who run in urban spaces can knock 200 doors a day, and I'm sure there are districts in the U.S. where you can knock far less than 100 doors a day. So it requires more time, more money, more investments, more volunteers, and I, and I think you know, so much of our message is that we need that investment in rural America. We need the support for rural progressive folks who are already pounding the pavement and doing the organizing all over the country. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I think that's a good segue in terms of just what the scope and breadth of that looked like. I mean, first of all, knocking on that many doors um, and, and sort of the, the motif that you, you, par um, you created parallels with in terms of running, the physical act of running, um, obviously means that this was both a campaign strategy, but there was also a fair amount of physical stamina required to do this, right? And, and I say that not just to, to laud your guys' energy levels. I am curious, by the way, caffeine or mostly just bubble mm -hmm. water? <laughs> Coffee? Tea? I did discover these diabolical caffeine packets at the grocery store okay. that I, I would take. Okay. Nice. <laughs> yeah, and I just put them in my water. Yeah, they're... And you're fired up, ready yeah. to go. Yeah. yeah. Canyon? <laughs> Oh, a lot of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it takes a lot of, of physicality, right? And I, I think we named that because not only was that a beautiful thread to draw on in the film, but if, if you are approaching doors, um, oftentimes in political campaigns, a campaign consultant or the Democratic Party or the Republican Party that has some built-in infrastructure um, is going to suggest that you try and make somewhere between, you know, five to ten contacts with an individual voter before you really persuade them, right? Doritos or Coca-Cola, they can show one ad to us during the Super Bowl, and maybe that imprint is in our mind. But when Chloe is first introducing herself to the electorate, you got to be regularly in their face, whether that's a Facebook ad, whether that's um, one of the, the, the mail pieces that, that arrive in their mailbox. Maybe it's a, it's a door knocker. Um, but nothing seems to beat this face-to-face -face empathy you argue in the book. And yet most of those campaign consultants, professional political operators that, that win great races, uh, might advise against wh why would you spend all of your time doing that? Maybe you should be fundraising, and that takes time on the phone. Why would you spend all of that time doing that? You can target them on Facebook because they'll see you in, your, in their phones, in their smartphones. Um, but you concluded that last line on screen run your own race. How did you grapple with the physicality of this, just the sheer stamina required? And then how did you grapple with the fact that some people probably said, y'all are crazy? <laughs> That's a great question. I think, um, you know, um, like looking at it just from a structural point of view, the, you know, the state caucus handed down a suggested budget for us and almost okay. about two thirds of that budget they wanted us to spend on consultants putting out mailers and advertisements and et cetera. Um, and instead we put a ton, we said no to the consultants. We decided to do all of our mail pieces in-house, hence my hilarious forays into graphic design. But <laughs> <laughs> aside from spelling Democrat incorrectly on our first uh, <laughs> first one, I think it went okay. Um, but point Great is... photo, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Point is, we decided to invest, invest that instead on organizing and building out what's called the field program. The, you know, coming at it from our grassroots background of climate organizing and putting that people power 
approach first. And so that's, that's what we did. We'd have days where friends would come up and stay with us for the whole weekend, and we'd canvas all weekend and then um, kick soccer balls and play capture the flag in the evening. And it was just like really fun and regenerative and community-based. And I think that gave, that gave me a lot of energy, and, and it also gave, gave the campaigns just so much more humanity that it was it was really a huge volunteer grassroots effort whereas um, most so many state level races don't do that because all of their budget goes to to paying for consultants Chloe I'll just ask you from that whole experience I'm sure you learned a lot but can you share some of the insights that you did learn about the voters in in the district you represent ah I learned I learned so much. I, I just also want to take a moment to say that in, in most states, you know, the folks who run the state apparatus, they're doing really good work with definitely not enough resources. And we, you know, we just want to honor all of that amazing work that is happening at the state level. I think, you know, part of our message is there are, there are ways that we can kind of shift what we're doing a little bit to really um, make them resonate a little bit more in, in rural communities. Um, and could you repeat the question one more time? Yeah, yeah no, yes. no, fair enough. And I, I respect the acknowledgement yeah. there, right? Yeah. Because doing a race in this fashion yeah. is not necessarily um, a, a commentary critiquing how other people run the races, yes. but it is a commentary on a pretty novel approach to go after rural voters, something that you, you argue Democrats don't do enough of, and to do so at such a massive scale of, of knocking and walking door to door to door. I was just kind of briefly trying to query, what did you learn from that experience? Yes. I mean, I learned so much, and that was that was part of the process of writing the book is is just feeling so overwhelmed by how much I learned about this community that I've lived in my entire life. I mean, my hometown's sixteen hundred people. It's not you know it's I didn't know that there was so much to learn. But you know, every day having conversations with folks who were who I thought were very different from me, but being able to find that common ground, I mean, it was. I mean, it was just life-changing to see how the conceptions that I've had or that, you know, kind of have been surrounding me as a progressive or a Democrat have really actually been exclusionary, even though I'm trying to be inclusive. Mm. And just the amount of space that we have to build movements and have conversations that are sustainable, you know, that, that so that we don't feel every cycle like, like we're just trying to squeeze every last bit of capacity out of our base, mm -hmm. that there is space to build an even broader movement, especially among rural voters. Um, and I think that's just, it's so important these days with, like you mentioned at the beginning, the rural vote becoming such a huge voting block across the country and also now swinging state legislatures to the right. We, we can't win sustainable political power for Democrats, for racial justice, for climate justice without talking to rural voters. That's a really good point because I think, and, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think you, you reflect on this in the book when you say that what's at risk is not just the outcomes and the lessons learned for the state of Maine um, or, or, or regions that you guys have played ball in, but also for legislatures across the country and specifically in the book, you, you say, and I'm quoting, for some rural voters, urban does, e does equal people of color and racism, um, and that's embedded in their anti-democratic views. For others, urban means wealthy, educated folks 
in tall apartment buildings, not unlike what we have around around us today. And this phenomenon, you both write, has become what is called a rural consciousness. That is the identity that a, a rural person might have that includes a sense that decision makers routinely ignore rural places and fail to give rural communities their fair share of resources. If we don't engage at this level and these concepts get reaffirmed and reaffirmed, we might, you're, you're arguing, Chloe, that we might create a legislative dynamic in which if we don't have people who are representing the views of rural voters and they need to cut a budget during tough t fiscal times, they might be very quick to maybe cut farm subsidies, for example, or they might go after another policy area that is that is core to the to rural community. I, I am curious, how do we make sure that we, that if, if Democrats have historically focused on dense urban areas, um, uh, and, and you're saying that we need to spread out, is the playbook that, that every campaign needs to do that in their own fashion, or is there a way to kind of export the playbook that you guys ran here in Maine? Well, I think, you know, when we acknowledge this in the book, what works in Maine is not gonna necessarily work in, in other states, and we, we did our best to extract experiences and lessons that can hopefully resonate with other states and certainly resonated in, in our other work. You know, some will apply, some won't. And sure. every community is so unique and it's the candidates and the organizers there that know best. Um, you know, at the same time, I think there are, there are some just general themes that, that we see, you know, and that we certainly hear as we get feedback from folks across the country running for office. I think one of the big ones is just folks desperate for more investment in the, in the campaigns that they're running in rural spaces. Just so many stories across the country, you know, of, of young folks running for office, but the party has shifted all of its resources to get out the vote in the city. And so they're just, mm. they're just left with their, with their smaller budgets, just trying to do the best that they can. Um, I think we also, you know, we need more investment in county committees. We're very blessed in, in my hometown Senate district to have the Lincoln County Democrats, which are an incredible group of volunteers doing year round organizing. Um, and that's such, it's such a gift and they certainly don't receive the investment that they need. And that's the case across the country. So there are, there are things that we're saying. I think the most important one is, is this concept of empathetic listening, which sounds so simple at the core, but campaigns are really built um, to extract data and information from voters. You know, it's it's really about the campaign and not about the human being who is experiencing the failure of our political system. Mm -hmm. So if you have a, a canvasser showing up and saying, um, you know, just reading reading the script, as I have done so many times when I started volunteering on campaigns and say, you know, hey, are you a, a strong supporter or a weak supporter for this candidate? And that's, your only goal is to identify that. The voter ends up feeling like, well, like, ugh, I don't know you and I'm telling you what I think and who I'm gonna vote for, that's a personal thing. And just doesn't leave a good taste in people's mouths. But that's, that's kind of, in general terms, what happens on the campaign trail. So we're trying to, to flip that on its head. It's, a, it's called deep canvassing these days. We hadn't heard that term when we started campaigning but it's this, I this idea of, of, of shaping our campaigns around meaningful, authentic conversations with people. So can you tell us a little bit more about this concept of deep canvassing? I, I, I'm curious, literally, what does that look like? So if I, I go up, I knock on your door, and either you open or don't, you might shoo me away. Um, if, you op if, if I open the door, 
do you ask me a series of questions? Are you carrying a clipboard? Do you ask to sit down? Like, what is the depth of that interaction actually look like? Yeah, ba basically, it's it's putting the clipboard and the the script aside and and just leading with what's on what's on your mind. What do you care about? Um, I think for like Chloe said, we kind of stumbled into it through our own experiences with campaigning. Um, one thing that was really striking was even working on great campaigns like like the Bernie campaign is, is just all about numbers, like how many how many doors have you knocked, how many volunteer shifts, and there is no there is no measurement of the quality of those conversations. And I think from our vantage point, we could see that in some cases that was doing a lot of harm because folks, yeah, folks would just get through the conversation as quickly as they could and, and onto the next door with that checkbox of are they supporting the candidate or not. Mm -hmm. And so s encouraging our volunteers to slow down and really go deep into the conversation wherever wherever it led and just focus on listening and hearing people. Folks, folks have such such a deep need to be heard, especially now when, when folks really feel, especially in, in rural America, not heard and engaged by the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, it, it, and it feels like something that not only worked well in, in 18 and 2020 for your campaigns, but now more than ever, um, this, this thirst to, to reconnect with human beings, especially after such deep isolation during the pandemic, it feels both good for the politics, but also good for the soul. Yeah, um, I just want to remind everyone that if you um, are keen on asking a question, we have cards um, filled out. If you haven't received a card, oh, great. Um, they will be passed up shortly. And if you are tuning in um, via YouTube on the live stream, feel free to ask questions uh, in the chat box as well. Um, before we turn to the audience questions, I do want to ask a little bit about uh, policy. So you mentioned in the film that Maine is the first state to have passed a Green New Deal. Um, that, is, that is amazing. Um, and that new Green New Deal, as, as many in this audience may be familiar with, that terminology really came into the fore when um, the congresswoman from, from New York, um, colloquially known as AOC, and uh, Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts, my actually former boss as well, um, introduced this bill in Congress. And there's a big debate about creating new deal-like infrastructure from post-World War II era um, investments and making sure that they were green and that there was diversity of jobs. Um, and these were advanced by a member of Congress from New York and a member of Congress from New York City and Boston, right? Um, and, and when we think of those, we think of those as very blue, kind of archetypical Democrats. And a lot of the people that supported them were people of all stripes, but we, we would might, if we were to close our eyes again, assume to be traditional kind of like urban dwelling, young, progressive, woke type of individuals, just to make some broad brush assumptions. And yet, not only from all the insights that you had from the deep canvassing, did you understand rural needs, but you were able to take what is seen as something that is a huge core issue within the progressive caucus of the Democratic Party in DC and map it directly to the needs of rural voters in Maine. And one might, if you're betting in Vegas, assume that you couldn't be able to do that, but you were able to do that. Tell us a little bit more about what the legislation did and tell us why you think it's actually a direct extension, not just of democratic goals, but a rule of voter goals. Mm. Just for the 
super clear record. It was the first state level Green New Deal bill to be endorsed by a state AFL CIO affiliate. Ah, that is fair. Yes. That, so that is actually extra important because we have labor leaders in the audience today. So yeah. that, that distinction is key. Sorry yes, about I that. Just, just um, learning a lot about being very clear. Um, you know, so when I was canvassing in 2018, I had thousands of conversations with people, and I can only remember one time when someone mentioned the words climate change. Mm. But I did hear people talk a lot about, you know, how hard it is to farm in Maine right now because of the droughts in the summer, or how we, we all go ice fishing every winter. And it, I mean, it's just totally different now than it was when I grew up because of how our environment is changing. We talk about the need for sustainable industries and good jobs in rural communities. So I heard all of those themes echoing around me in these conversations. Um, and that to me is how I think about climate change. So when I was elected my first time, I had four bills. They were all directly rooted in the community. And one of them was called an act to establish a Green New Deal for Maine. And uh, I called it that because I wanted to draw attention to a different way of talking about the climate crisis that was rooted in rural working places. The bill started out with five different components. It was always meant to be more of a targeted piece of legislation. Um, it was crafted with the unions involved from, from I think the second conversation about the bill. In the end, it ended up doing two small but really important things. One is that it made sure that on large scale renewable energy projects in Maine, that a certain percentage of workers had to come from a federal or state union apprenticeship program. Okay. So that really helps young folks in communities like mine know that they can get trained and find a good job. And it also helps the manufacturers and developers know that they're gonna have a trained workforce in the state. The other piece of the bill was really targeted at schools and making sure that schools had the support to transition to solar energy. Uh, property taxes are a huge issue in my community because of the rising cost of schools. And so the idea was to try and get at, you know, how do we make, how do we make sure that our energy transition doesn't impact um, our property taxes? Mm -hmm. So two very small but targeted and important ways of thinking about climate in a rural space. That's incredible. And I, I, when I think about that, I think about your um, one of your lines in the in the film that when you're running or when you're thinking about talking to people within that community, talking to people who are of that land, who either work it because of their day job or um, protect it because of just the the landscape of the environment that they're in, um, you would think that somehow a Democrat in D.C. thinks that this is an AOC type bill. This is very different than maybe the needs of rural America, but there's a very clear line to that sense of protecting that line, protecting that land in that way. Totally. Um, so our first audience question is that recognizing just what is an incredible chemistry that you both have. Um, and it's a true testament to your friendship to be able to work through really grueling hours and, and keep a, a supportive um, dynamic going. And on page 98, um, of the book, you actually uh, write that you respect the, the wisdom of each other um, and that Can one of Canyon's mentors, uh, Julia Buckner, said that um, encouraged you to, to go work with Chloe um, and that your, your, uh, your 2018 campaign ode um, was that you would maybe have, if had you not gone the direction, maybe you would have stayed in North Carolina. Um, I'll also add to that question, if I may, that in the book, you actually acknowledge how potentially absurd it could be to go work on a campaign. And yet you reflect in the book that uh, all we have is hope. 
and that the sense of banking on hope is a really important um, thing that drives you. Not that that Senator Maxman is, is absurd, but the fact that you could jump into a campaign for a candidate at that age um, was a, a pretty outsized possibility. But you have this friendship, you have this depth of understanding of the needs of the community and of each other. Can you walk us through that process of why you decided to leap into this campaign and what this has meant for you? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, it was early, early 2018 and, um, it was, a, it, it was a challenging decision, you know, whether I've been, I've been rooting in my home community in North Carolina and doing political work there. And I called up Julia, um, uh, and I was kind of looking for her to, you know, she's, Firmly involved with North Carolina politics, so I kind of expected her to be like, "Yeah, we need you. We need you here. Stay and and work on this campaign that I was thinking about." But Julia was just like, "No, Canyon, go, go and work with your friend." Um, and I, I really needed to hear that. And and yeah, appreciate the wisdom of our our mentors in in pushing us in in the right directions in that way. You know, it was a super uphill battle in 2018 she was running in a district that had gone republican by 16 points on average and it's a 25 year old trying to win the oldest oldest county in uh, by age in maine and um so it was definitely a leap of faith but also we had such a strong foundation of our friendship of uh, from early days in, in college of climate organizing and um organizing around fossil fuel divestment and so just yeah really leaned leaned into that and couldn't yeah folks folks showed up from those campaigns and um yeah feel chloe is there one thing that you learned about canyon as a campaign manager that you didn't know as a friend (laughs) (laughs) oh what a good question (laughs) um I mean, Canyon and I had co-coordinated Divest Harvard together, which is, you know, also very intense managing and, and planning these blockades and these civil disobedience actions at Harvard. So I feel like we had really been been through it together. But Canyon is so um, I feel like he, he's very protective in a way that I always appreciated and, you know, kind of shielding me from from some of the things that I probably shouldn't hear and telling me everything that I should hear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's um, an, a question from from the audience that kind of zooms out a little bit about um, what you're saying in the book, uh, and, and that the, the the claim is that everything that you all are saying seems to be pretty universal. That it's not just uniquely an issue of rural voters feeling ignored. Um, it could actually maybe feel that city voters yeah. are ignored if housing costs are too high and they're not getting responsiveness from from their lawmakers or suburban voters who who might live in a in a well healed zip code but maybe they have their own challenges too. Um, what do you say to those that that might think that what you're saying can apply to everyone? Is that necessarily a bad thing, or is your prescription to focus more on rural voters at the expense of focusing on other constituencies? Yeah, absolutely not mutually exclusive. I think that's a, that's a great point. You know, we're we're just talking from our very particular experience, which is in a rural context, but I think that there's strong, strong threads of the frustrations that people are feeling in every community. And, and hopefully there's, there's threads of, you know, going about it in a different way that can be positive and, and resonate in campaigns anywhere. 
Chloe, anything to add? I, I totally agree. I think, you know, the, the message of the book is really about the kind of growing and hopefully not super durable power of rural politics, pushing everything to the right and making the case for the investment um, for, for that sake. But that is, of course, not the only place where we need investment. We, I think, like Canyon said it perfectly, I, I mean, probably every voter in America feels disenfranchised right now. Yeah. I, you know, one of the ways that, that most campaigns increasingly um, feel, the campaigns feel that they can ensure that the voters are not disenfranchised is connecting through the internet or connecting through a smartphone. Um, we are worlds apart today in terms of how folks campaign, how all of you um, are targeted, how I am targeted when I'm just reading an article on a random website and I start to see YouTube ads from a specific campaign or digital ads kind of in the corner of a, of a website. Um, can you reflect a little bit about how you think the role of digital everything, Android, iPhone targeting everything in political campaigns is impacting the Democrats' willingness to go and have the cuff, tough conversations along the dirt roll, roads like you guys have had? Hmm. That's such a good question. I mean, I think it's so much easier to to pay to put out those targeted advertisements and to pay for TV ads than it is to build up a complicated field organizing infrastructure sure. to go and have those face-to-face -face conversations. And so I think that plays a huge role. But as I think as we've seen, especially in rural communities where it's hard and time-consuming to go down those driveways, it, those conversations mean so, so much more um, than, than an advertisement. I th yeah. Yeah. I think, too, that we're so used to political, when political stuff invades our lives in, in really negative ways and kind of consistently negative ways where, yeah. like, nobody wants that in their lives. And I think a lot of politics is negative these days or we just associate politics with negativity. And so I do think, you know, that we need, we need more positive messaging in our politics. And sometimes the only way to cut through that is with a face-to-face -face conversation or, you know, a, a campaign ad or something that's, you know, designed by someone in your family and that doesn't look so professional. Um, that was something that we experienced in Maine in 2020 when we had the Susan Collins, Sarah Gideon U.S. Senate race as well as the presidential race and all the local races. The amount of advertise, advertising through every single medium for YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, the radio, the newspaper, it was so overwhelming to people mm. um, that folks were literally just shutting down. And it was so much work just to have a simple conversation about politics. Yeah, I, I imagine that it's um, kind of more of a dial in terms of how much you're turning on of, of one lever versus another mm -hmm. lever throughout the campaign. Um, what, one question that came in from online is, how, how have your insights evolved when it comes to um, translating progressive values into just digestible, um, under, easy to understand, snackable bites? You know, I think the Democratic Party is often criticized for um, having too many words and too, being too convoluted in explaining its concepts and tripping over nuance on some level. Um, and it feels that the Republican Party is very solid at just being able to be very direct, very clear, very succinct. Has that type of um, communications reflection impacted any of your work as you've gone through two campaigns now? Definitely. I mean, I, I think that nuance is actually really important, and especially now having served four years in office, 
um, I think nuance is really important. Not everything, not everything is black and white, although some things certainly are. Um, and I think especially at the doors that it's, it's, it's important to be able to have clear conversations, but also to kind of demonstrate the complexity in them. Like people, act, I find that people are actually looking for that, you know, um, and people want their politicians to be like thoughtful about things and not like necessarily universal. And I mean, how refreshing is it when you can have a conversation with someone and agree to disagree? Like, I feel like that's such a special thing when we have political conversations. So yeah, that was a not awesome answer to a really no, good No, no, it's, it's a great answer. It's a great <laughs> answer. I, I think well, I want to um, draw this to a close to talk a little bit about um, what what's next and what you see as next, both for, for Maine lawmakers and the country. And I'll, I'll do that by, by talking a little bit about detractors, um, arguably, let's just put it another way, haters of your guys' book. And I don't mean this in a negative way, but there have been some that come from within Maine that would say that this book is trying to appeal to kind of the liberal elites, the coastal elites. Fine, that's one allegation. There have been those that might say that it's a little absurd or hopeless, you know, maybe when you were thinking about joining the campaign to think that you can flip rural voters that were, you know, plus 16 Trump, for example, right? There's going to be a lot of people that say, Chloe, Canyon, you're, you're now in the game, right? You're, you're playing in the NBA. And if you really want to keep racking up these championships, you, you should, you know, play within our sandbox, right? Do what the state caucus is advising you to do. Use digital tools if you think that that might be more efficient use of resources than knocking on all these doors. You're going to get a lot of this, I wouldn't say negative inbound, but like skepticism, cynicism from so many different directions. And I want to know what both of you think in terms of how current generations of would-be candidates, of would-be campaign operators should think about that. Because there are going to be folks that think about running for office as young as you or maybe um, much older in life, and they feel that I can't run in this city because I'm a little bit more moderate and this is a progressive town. Or I can't run in this district because I think that I perform better with this audience versus this other audience. Or I can't run because I don't have the money and everyone's telling me I need at least $500,000 or a million dollars to run enough Facebook ads and TV ads to win. Your campaign successes have said that you can sometimes win despite that. But it is a very tough thing that you guys pulled off. And a lot of people who decide to get into this game, which as you said, Chloe, is important to change everything that we love in this life that are maybe disenfranchised and deterred from feeling like I don't got the money, I don't have the appeal, I don't have the block. How would you talk to that next generation of young or older first-time candidates, first-time field directors, first-time campaign organizers that might just feel nervous that they have to operate in one of those boxes when you guys flew in the face of, of odds and adversity to win your own? That's an awesome. That's an awesome question. I mean, I think number one, grab your friends. Uh, yeah. They're going to be with you every step of the way, and and your elders and your mentors, because um, that's that's the core that you draw the love and the the energy energy from. I think, you know, it, Maine's an interesting state. I think I think some folks in the Maine Democratic Party took took some exception to you know we do have a Democratic majority right now in, in Maine, and it is a rural state. Um, so I think there was some offense taken to, you know, the, you know, the critique of we're not connecting in rural America, but it's, you know, it's no secret that we, we 
are not winning the kind of support that we should be, especially nationally, but but really everywhere in rural communities. And so, you know, our message from our very particular experience as, as young people going about this is that we can run and win as Democrats, as unabashed progressives in rural communities, and that we need so many more people, especially young people, putting themselves out there and taking that leap in the face of, of a ton of uncertainty and inevitable pushback from the status quo. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's our message is to, is to take the leap and, and to, to run your own race. Yes, <laughs> yes to everything Canyon said. And I think, you know, I, running for office is really challenging. I mean, and there are so many folks who have been disenfranchised from, from the system and, and it may be really painful if not impossible to engage with it. And there's so much privilege that comes with running for office. Um, it's challenging financially, it's challenging personally. We have to really own and recognize all of that and make room in our political system for people to engage in ways that are truly effective and that can influence policy. Um, at the same time, I think our races need to reflect the kind of politics that we want. You know, we need to have people running for office who are who are representative of all of the different identities that we have in our states and in our nation. It's those races that are different, that are authentic, that are rooted in our community. Um, those are the people that I admire. I mean, that's what gives me hope. Mm -hmm. And I think without that, we just see politics as the same cycle after cycle, and it never gets better, and we never have an excuse or a reason to engage with it. And so I think it was in the amazing documentary about AOC um, where she said, you know, we have to run 10 race races just to win one. And running the race has so much meaning and has such a big impact, even if we don't win. That's good to know. I, I, I respect how committed you are to the process of the race and the campaign as a, as a form of connecting with people, regardless of what's the outcome on the other side. Um, but obviously, the success of what you've done and showcasing that empathy um, on the campaign trail, I think is something that America and the world could really learn from. And as hokey as it might sound, running on love, running on connectivity, running on making sure you're just allowing someone to feel that, that you're knocking on their door, whether they wanna shut that door on you or talk to you or not, that you're giving them that chance is an incredible demonstration of, of determination and just grace on your part. So ladies and gentlemen, let's give it up for Canyon Woodward and Senator You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Outbreakinternational.org slash Ukraine. Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. Before we begin, we want to take a moment to acknowledge the international crisis taking place in Ukraine 
and highlights an organization providing humanitarian assistance to people living in or fleeing Ukraine because of the war. Outright Action International is an organization dedicated to fighting for the human rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, and queer people everywhere. In response to the Russian invasion, Outright established a Ukraine fund to support local partners in Ukraine and neighboring countries who are providing emergency assistance to LGBTIQ people in need of safe shelter, food, medical care, transportation for those fleeing the country, and other types of humanitarian support. Because mainstream humanitarian systems too frequently leave LGBTIQ people behind. We encourage you to learn more about how to support Outright's important work by visiting outrightinternational.org slash Ukraine. Thank you for listening.